This is the Three Towns podcast. It was first published in late 2020 for the first anniversary of the Black Summer Fires. This is the Three Towns podcast and the second episode about Can River's Black Summer. I'm Matthew Abud. The town in Far East Gippsland was surrounded by fire for weeks in January 2020. Many left, and those who stayed and those who went, each faced immense but different challenges. Earthworks contractor Gus McKinnon and his crew didn't let up in fighting the fire. We had a battle for a week, um, tried to get in the valley, uh, we had a few grass fires, but a lot of the places up the valley here, the, the fire went from the top of the hill to the top of the hill, the ember attacks, and then it burnt back down into the valleys from both sides. But it's all right, well, it's trickling down slowly, but then you get the wrong day and the wrong wind and it's off at 100 mile an hour. And then um, we were lucky, I don't know, it was the second day, the third day, but we got half a dozen fire trucks that come out of Canberra. Um, they were supposed to go to Malakuta, but they were cut off, so... They stopped in Keen River, so they were really good. Um, them CFA people, they just get they get upset if it's a dull day and there's nothing happening. They, they, the fire was threatening the telecom tower up Nurembi, so they sent us up there to um, send a bulldozer up there. So I went and had a look. Here's a CFA in the middle of this circle here with the tower and there's a flames one side and there's smoke and it's hurting your eyes and they're all happy as Larry. <laughs> just love it. <laughs> There's not flames and smoke and everything happening, they're not happy. They just love that flames and smoke. Been firefighting for years and everybody knows what to do, so it was just a matter of trying to keep the fire out of the valley. But the theory is you look after Cairn River, right? The Harbour Cairn River, but if it's if you can look after the whole valley, you look after the whole valley. But once you get out of the valley up the top end and all the houses outside the valley, you can try and look after them, but they're in the bush. They're, as soon as the fire gets too intense, you, you move back to the valley, and if the, if the heat gets too much in the valley, well, you move back to the Cairn River to the school. You're based at the school, so you all sit at the school, but when it dies down, you go out and attack it. So that's probably why we saved Cairn River, because we went out and attacked the bloody thing. There's nothing worse than sitting here waiting for it to come. I mean, you're going to sit here and wait, licking the edge of the town, or you know, you, we had a chance to get out of the road and put fire breaks in, so that's, you know, we took it. Last episode told how, after the first fire front passed, locals were urged to get out of town before the next threat arrived. Many did, but the evacuation to Orbost, almost an hour to the west, didn't go as they expected. Bush nurse Maria Mercik explains. Conway left sometime in the morning, but then by the afternoon, people were calling here saying, there's nothing in Norbost, where do we go? And they were told that there will be a refuge place in Norbost where they, you know, they'll have showers and counselling and all of that kind of available. None of that was there. Whose mission was that? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's kind of irrelevant, you know what I mean? Like, it's something we can plan better for future and better for communication or whatever. A number of clients we actually advised to leave. Some of them had to leave by bus because 
um, they had no other transport, meaning that they weren't free to attempt to come back um, earlier, but they had to wait till that very last time when obviously they were, the buses were able to come back in. And that again put people under lots of pressure, um, not only financially, but many of them it was financial as well because some of them couldn't stay at the refuge. It was because of their health conditions and, and all of that. I think the idea might have been that we'll get to be to Orbost, we'll be there a few days, the front's going to pass and we can go home. Um, but it wasn't anything like it. Some of them were out for three or four weeks. I think if people knew from beginning they were going to Bairnsdale that half of them wouldn't have left. What was happening to the people still in Can River, what was happening with those who had left, and how to find that out, communication over these days and weeks was a desperate need. Julie Mustard was one of the people getting urgent requests for information. Well, I did. I had a lot of people asking me, where's so-and-so and all that, because I do a Facebook page called Can River and Surrounds. So there was people that had never been... Um, they were contacting me to ask where their family was, their friends was, because no one had phones. And there was people ringing up, I haven't spoken to my sister for years and years, is she okay? You know, can I ring her? And I, you know, yeah. I said, well, it might be not the time to ring that person at the moment because I knew, I knew the girl and I knew how stressed she was. You couldn't have coped with it with somebody that you hadn't spoken with for years, I said, but she's okay, you know. That summer, Susie Beatty was coordinator at Can Rivers Community Centre, or Neighbourhood House. Her home, though, is in Cabbage Tree Creek. That's a much smaller hamlet, also in the middle of the forest, about half an hour to the west. I knew I was going, so it was all about when and where. The turning point for me was a video on social media from the ICC that uh, where he was saying, look, it doesn't look this bad, that bad on the map of active fire now, but this is the forecast map for tomorrow. At that point, Can River was on the eastern edge of the forecast map. So they were, they were expecting the fire to blow down from Buchan and co- cover Orvost and come out towards Cabotry, um, cover Cabotry Creek, Club Terrace. And then the fire started winging on the other side of Can. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, get out. And by five o'clock Monday morning, me and my three kids and my grandson were driving to Eden. I think I drove the whole way to Eden holding my breath. Got to Eden, let out my breath and went to sleep. Um, And then all the roads out of Eden closed. There's no accommodation anywhere. Ended up sleeping in the footy oval on borrowed sleeping bags. Eden was good at looking after us. They, they did a lot at the footy oval, but we were all trapped there. I found a few people from Cairn River there. That was nice. Susie's husband, Scott, didn't leave. He stayed, uh, mostly because of the animals. Again, where do you go? What do you do? So our two milking goats were not going to get to Eden. Uh, and, you know, they don't travel particularly well anyway. So he loaded them on the ute and brought them into Orbost. He was thinking that there would be a refuge in Orbos. When he got to Orbos, there was a note sticky taped to the door saying, sorry, we've closed it, and that was all there was. Um, And he wanted to be able to get back in here once the front had come over. So we were away that first time for eight days. Um, Ended up having to come home via Shepparton and Melbourne because the roads were all closed to get back any other way. So we went Canberra, Shepparton, Melbourne. 
It was awful. It was terrifying. It was utterly terrifying. Yeah. Um, this was pretty common for those who had left compared to those who had stayed. I think when you stayed, you saw what was happening. But when you're hearing it on the radio and you can't get somebody on the phone, it's pretty scary. It was scary, and, and everybody was like that. I camped next to a friend of mine in the in the Eden Footy Oval. I was camped next to a friend of mine from Can River who was feeling the same about her daughter, who was a volunteer firefighter. You just don't know. You just don't know what's going on. And you can ring every so often, of course. You get telephone communication every so often, but the hours in between are pretty terrifying. There were a couple of days I wasn't sure if I was coming home to a husband or a house. Yeah, um, and it, because the reality on the ground was very, very different to the information you got off the official channels, and that was the hard part about being separated, because it was obvious to Scott most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time he felt fairly confident he was going to survive it, but it was not obvious to me from the official channels of information that he was actually going to survive it, and that was the really hard part. The one, there was one morning when I was pretty sure he was going to die, when the forecasts were dire, and I... In those eight weeks, I had a, you know, a daily round of phone calls to make to his mother and my mother. And everybody was crying that morning. Everybody was sobbing, worrying for Scott to die. And they called him last, and he was laughing. I'm as safe as anyone, he says. <laughs> I mean, there were mothers separated from teenage children. There were, you know, husbands and wives separated. There were people a long way from all they hold most dear. And the, the information was so different. Scott was here by the time me and the kids got home on the road. The whole house was wrapped up in tin foil, isolation over all the windows. And yeah, we're coming up that driveway and seeing my house still standing and him standing outside it. Pretty awesome coming home. Just being able to find out what was happening was by itself key for people to be able to deal with the stress and the trauma. Many people who lived further up the valley, out of Can River Town, had also left. Michael O'Brien was one who stayed, and he quickly became a key source of information about what was happening around him. It certainly wasn't something that was planned, or um, it was just my Facebook post. Uh, like everybody else had um, evacuated the valley and the town and whatever, and everybody was spread, you know, to assholes, you know, like they were everywhere, and there was very little information getting out from the area it was all outside observations but little on the ground detail um because i'm i'm off grid you know my power wasn't impacted my internet satellite wasn't impacted my access to the news and television wasn't impacted 
I'm quite well set up. Like I've got a huge pantry in there and a huge freezer and um, people comment on all, all sorts of things. But uh, I think they, like I'd always start a report with, you know, what are the facts? You know, the temperature is this, the wind is doing that, the visibility is this. Um, like I always say, yeah, with the local knowledge, I was keeping an eye on people's private property and giving them updates on how things were going, where the fire was in relation to their property. I was as surprised as any with my five minutes of fame. Apparently everybody was tuning in to me, everybody from town, all the emergency services. I wasn't alarmist. I wasn't big on the panicking or whatever. I was just, you know, like, it's all pretty good, you know. Um, I remember a couple of posts, you know, like, fire, fire, there's fire fucking everywhere. <laughs> the hills are alive with fire. Um, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> it's travelling slowly downhill, but, you know, you look at it, it's all fire, it's everywhere. At one point, the house of Michael's neighbour was under threat. I went up there, like I kept monitoring their place, keeping an eye on it. And there's just this line of fire and it's, it's, it's coming down and it's really slow. I was really taking its time. But there's only one way it's headed, it's coming down and it's coming down to this house. And they only had one hose that didn't reach the back of the shed. The shed's on the high side and what the fuck do I do here? All I had was a lighter. So... You know, little tufts of grass like this. I started lighting them up. And within about three minutes, I've got whole trees burning. I've got 30-foot flames. I've got Dante's version of hell right in front of me. You know, it's sort of, it's, you know, like the bush was tinder dry. Once it got started, it was off. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure if I'm going to own up to this or not. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, at a couple of points, you know, it was starting to head down the hill down towards the house, but I was able to just put that out with my boots, you know, so a bit of fancy tap dancing for about 10 minutes, just, you know, keeping, keeping it headed in one direction. And, yeah, it, it raced up and it met the other fire and um, didn't get anywhere near their house because of that. Um, then I owned up to it. Now I tell the story. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd be a, oh, I don't know what the fuck happened there. <laughs> For me, it was like largely an adventure. You know, like each day was an adventure. Each day was something new. You know, I had a Chinook land in my paddock here. Um, all that kind of stuff. Fire trucks here, you know. Boys are an adventure. <laughs> it took weeks. But finally, the roadblocks were removed and the roads reopened. Because there wasn't much fire damage, Can River doesn't face the long rebuilding process that other places do. Many activities just started right up. The school year began, some businesses reopened. From talking to people, though, the continued impacts are uneven. For some, the fire is still very much front of mind. For others, especially with the COVID pandemic, it feels further in the background. It's complicated. In a lot of ways, there's obviously lots to be thankful for. This is Maria Mersick. You know, I can't go but not mention 
a number of people that um, you know took my children under their wing and say did you have breakfast this morning and I come over here I'll cook breakfast for you you know and, and um, I like to focus on those things so it was rewarding in, in many many ways that because you know the community and you know people on, on a different level than just being a patient in a hospital or something um, you were able to connect with them so much better. Fred and Kerry Machi from Relics Cafe also felt the appreciation for what they were able to do. We ended up getting a couple of cards from people and a write-up in the paper. A lot of newspapers have had write-ups. Yeah. Um, the Age and yeah, RACV and The Sun. And, and a few of the fire brigade ones, they got some cards from them, yeah. to thank us. Yes, yes. Which is really nice. Yeah. Just a thank you means so much. Yeah. You know, when you're doing the 14, 15 hour days and somebody comes up and says thank you, appreciate yeah. it. Means a lot. Yeah. Locals are of course thankful the town was saved. But the experience also actually drives home future risk. Perhaps ironically, that's because of the crucial role played by Gus McKinnon's contracting business. And that's the thing too, like, he's an old-timer, so he's been through this before and he's probably been taught by his father and, and so forth and so forth. And, and now you worry about if that happens again, what, is, does this generation know what to do? Is there going to be that sort of help out there? If it happened now, without the local contractors here, we'd be buggered. This is an issue, this is a real issue. Like, if you take that forestry out, then you take out the business case for a business like Gus. And if Gus, Gus's business doesn't exist, you don't have those resources to call upon in times of fire. I'm not quite sure what the answer is. So it was common knowledge around Can River for years before this fire, that should a big fire come now that it, the timber industry is gone, we were utterly unprepared to manage it. There have been big fires before, and they have been managed, but by the timber industry. And um, when that left, and whatever you want to say about why it left, um, and what the consequences of that were, you know, for the forest and for the community, um, it certainly left us much, much less prepared to fight a bushfire. That's undebatable. Listening to them, it's perhaps not too much to say that Can River's bushfire resilience still rests on the industry from its past, and the future is far more uncertain. Susie Beatty says trying to get a response to this has been a struggle. Well, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of floundering trying to get somebody's attention to it. Um, there was a, a bit of a lobbying campaign. It took a while for it to get coordinated and to coalesce. Um, the area immediately around the Can River Township has areas that are managed by the council, the Catchment Authority, Parks, DELP, and Rural Regional Roads Victoria. To navigate the boundaries between those six bureaucracies was just completely beyond us. So we went straight to our um, state MP and started lobbying him to pay somebody to look after this stuff. Um, and she's a community-based bushfire management officer. And we got her uh, about three weeks before the fire. For Susie, this shows in stark relief some broader realities that Can River confronts. The sense of being completely abandoned by the government bureaucracies in the world out there and the, 
you know, the greenies from the city or even the politicians from the city or the university educated people, that's quite strong. And what, where that emergency preparedness stuff sat was with that local self-efficacy and practical knowledge and, and you know, handiness and, and ability um, was feeling really stymied by the fact that we're surrounded by all of these hectares of publicly managed bush. So these blokes could see what needed to be done and they knew how to do it, but they weren't allowed. And that's how they felt about it. Gus McKinnon's own thoughts on this are pretty clear. Why we have X amount of assets around town and they're not maintained and there's, there's, you've got to have trees right up to the edge of them. You've got a mobile phone tower and you're already in enough trouble and the tower burns down and your telephone goes out, you're in, you're in bloody big trouble then. So, you know, um, yeah, ply painting, your seven Ps, but yeah, it doesn't happen. So, well, I'm trying to put a big dam in, Ken River. Put a big dam in so we've got a big water supply so we put sprinklers on all the school and on the can oval on the on the hall. If we had the overall set up with big sprinklers and the school, the sports ground with sprinklers and plenty of water, you just go and park there. You wouldn't have to go anywhere. You wouldn't. I mean, I can't get the dam put in because there's too much red tape at the moment. It's too much. You can't put it there and you can't do that and you can't do this. And this leave early. That's where you're supposed to go. Heading into another fire season, it's the need to learn from what's happened, not just in general terms, but deeply at the local level. That jumps out to me. That's not just about learning how to deal with the physical risk. It's also about the community's overall well-being. Maria Mersick again. The incident was so massive and it was so widespread that I don't think anybody could have been prepared for it. And that's to be really fair to say that. Um, I think they were, when they realised how massive this is, it just became kind of damage control. We do what we can right now. It's so unpredictable. It's nobody's. You can't sort of blame and say, oh, you know, it's them or this. Or It's not. It's just how it happened. Um, but we learn from it and say, okay, how can we better be prepared for future? Um, but I do see um, events that created unnecessary um, either panic or additional stress, um, mental health issues, you know, that, that people came back here um, three or four weeks later and feeling quite on edge that, you know, you have these mixed feelings, you know, was it the right thing to leave and not to be here as part of the community? Some people were, um, I guess they weren't blamed, but they were, the expectation was for them to stay. Um, I don't know why, because, you know, we all, we all individuals, we all make our own decisions. Um, I certainly, my plan wasn't ever to stay for the whole entire time. But this year, that, that, that's how it happened. If you ask Gus, though, he's planning on never needing to do this again. Oh, well, my back's a bit crook and I'm about up to retirement. I'm 73 next week, so um, I've been trying to sell out the last couple of years. Um, had a farm here, sold the farm, so I want to go and live by side of the sea. <laughs> we keep... <laughs> If there's a fire coming, you can't go wrong. If you've got one foot in the water. <laughs> Don't keep one foot in the grave, just keep one foot in the water. Should be right, shouldn't you? <laughs> Hunky-dory. <laughs> I'd like to spend a beach sitting on the 
on the edge of the water watching the smoke going up over the hill and thinking some other poor bugger's got to chase it. I've been chasing them most of my life. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we head back down the highway to Sarsfield in the western part of East Gippsland. I'm Matthew Abud, and this is the Three Towns Podcast. It was first published in late 2020 for the first anniversary of the Black Summer Fires. Thanks to Spoonbill for the theme music. You can find a link to his work on the episode website. And thanks to Daniel Bowden and to Steve Adam for sound design and engineering support. (laughs) 